Today is the two part, is the second part of our series, Sacred Space. Our scripture lesson is a scene from the book of Ruth. Ruth has left her homeland and traveled to her mother-in-law's nation. And now Ruth is seeking a way to find enough food to eat. She goes to the fields to glean what is left after the crops have been harvested. Listen for what makes this ordinary day sacred space. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain left behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. And as it happened, she came to part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimech. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord is with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who has come back with Naomi from the land of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came, and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I've ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken highly to your servant even though I am not one of your servants. A flimsy tent might be enough. Tent camping along the Mulberry River in Arkansas. After a long day canoeing down that river and your friends are setting up the campsites and they're, they're pitching their tents while they're singing and playing practical jokes on one another. Tent camping in Rocky Mountain National Park at one of those coveted spots inside the park. You're setting up the tent and you realize that night it's so completely worth it because your toddler looks up and sees more stars in the night sky than he's ever seen before. Tent camping with the members of your scout troop out at Bartle as they unplug from Wi-Fi and FaceTime so that they can enjoy the simple pleasures of rock skipping and s'mores. You know, it wasn't that long ago when our own ancestors were tent camping as they loaded up their covered wagons and moved westward in the westward expansion of this nation, pitching their tents 
along the way. Even today, a simple tarp with a few sticks can be just enough for a relief worker in Morocco or a soldier in Ukraine to find shelter at night. The shelter, you see, it just needs to be strong enough to protect us from the rain at 2 a.m. or those other scary sounds that go boom in the night. Inside of the shelter, you can play cards. You can read a book by a flashlight. You can find privacy. You can sleep. Just zip up the tent and rest. I wonder if Ruth and Naomi slept in a tent. Ruth and Naomi are the main characters in today's scripture story that Joe read for us. Ruth and Naomi have found themselves destitute. They have no shelter, no plan, no stability, no protection, no prospects for a better life. Ruth and Naomi cannot even purchase a home because women in the ancient world were not allowed to own property or get a credit card in their own name. When Naomi's son married Ruth, it was what my grandmother would have called a mixed marriage. A Jew marrying a non-Jew, a, a, a man from Bethlehem marrying a woman from another nation, a Moabite. Naomi and her husband had fled their hometown of Bethlehem during the famine years before and pitched their tents out in Moab seeking to build a better life of economic stability as refugees in the land of Moab. But then after marrying and becoming part of the culture, the unthinkable happened. Naomi's husband dies, Ruth's husband dies, and Naomi decides there's nothing for her to do except to pack up and go home to Bethlehem. At least she knows people back home on whose land she might be able to pitch a tent. But Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go with you. And Naomi says, no, no, no. You pitch your tent amongst your kin, amongst your parents, amongst your customs and your religion. Go back. Find shelter among your own people in Moab. But Ruth is stubborn, and she says to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. And so with a little bit more or less than a tent, between them, these two widows walk all the way from Moab back to Bethlehem, where rumor has it the famine is now over and there will be enough bread to put on the table. For Naomi, it's a homecoming. Naomi had grown up in Bethlehem. Her husband had been one of the leaders in the hometown synagogue where she met him. The two widows fold up their tents and they pack up to go home. And Naomi can already smell the pita bread cooking over the open fire in the village. She remembers the game she played in the barn with her cousins. The harp music played at her own wedding in the temple. But for her daughter-in-law, for Ruth, this place called Bethlehem holds zero nostalgia. She has never set foot in this place called Bethlehem. Sometimes our human relationships are flimsy and fragile, like a worn out tent, that kind that has a hole in the 
tarp and lets rain in in the night when you sleep, sometimes our friendships and our family ties fray. Sometimes the tent of care that we were sure would carry us through collapses. Sometimes when you're sleeping in a tent, you become afraid because all you can hear are the bugs that seem to be getting louder and louder. And sometimes you cannot sleep a wink because the ground is hard and the chilly night air keeps you coughing and tossing and turning, unable to feel safe or warm. Will the tent of friendship hold? In the novel called The People We Keep, 16-year-old April often feels completely alone in this life for reasons we are not told. Her mother abandoned the family, leaving her father to raise her, and now her father has a new girlfriend. He has moved in with the girlfriend, and 16-year-old April is living in their trailer home alone, and so she decides to run away from home, though there isn't much home to run from, and she begins trying to make a living playing her guitar and singing at coffee shops across the land. Most nights, she finds herself parking her car behind a truck stop or maybe pitching her tent in an abandoned campground and shivering all night long as winter is setting in. And along the way in the coffee shop, someone will reach out to her with kindness and friendship, and she tries to reciprocate, but she is afraid. And so she quickly moves on, leaves town. Friendship, she knows, she has learned. It is risky. What if someone hurts your feelings? Or worse yet, what if you hurt someone's feelings? April keeps no one in her life. No one. Except the lady that she used to work for at the diner after school. And no matter where she goes, when Sunday comes around at 2 o'clock, she gathers up some change, finds a phone booth, and calls the owner of the diner to say, How are you? I'm fine. One person in the world knows about her, knows if she is dead or alive, if she is safe. When Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, finally arrive in Bethlehem, they have nothing more than the shelter of each other. So in order to find some bread for their table, Ruth leaves the tent and she goes out into the community to scavenge for food that she can bring home for her mother-in-law. She takes up the practice of gleaning. She finds a field where the workers who are paid are picking the crop and she goes behind those paid workers to gather up any scraps. This custom of gleaning is what you and I might think of today as harvesters, our local food bank, or what we might think of when a family goes to purchase the children's back-to-school clothes at Goodwill. You take other people's cast-offs, and there isn't a lot of dignity in it, but it's the best you can do. While Ruth and Naomi experience food insecurity and a precarious economic future, they are able to discover the tent of loyal friendship in abundance in their relationship. In the modern world that you and I inhabit, we often hunger more for friendship than for food. The bond of loyal friendship, we are told by the leading experts in this nation, is fraying. The U.S. Surgeon General reports that loneliness in modern America is at epidemic levels. 
20 years ago, says the Surgeon General, all age groups spent more time with their peers than we do today. Young people face the most dramatic decline in our social interactions. If you look at our young people today, and I'm talking about those between the ages of 15 and 25, they are experiencing 70% less social interaction with friends than did the same group 20 years ago. We are told that the health risks of loneliness are severe, comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We are at greater risk of heart attack, stroke, and dementia when we lack the shelter of one another. We are more stressed, more anxious, and experience higher levels of inflammation when we are lonely. And the Surgeon General says that you can feel lonely even if you're around people all the time because it's about the quality of your human connections. We need people we can feel safe with. We need people who will love us through thick and thin. We need people who know our flaws, our sins, our mistakes, our misguided thinking, and love us anyway, and will love us into becoming our best selves. There comes a time in every human life when we need someone to shelter us. This ancient story of two widows in need in the Bible is repeated in every generation. For example, I recently read the autobiographical book called Dinners with Ruth. The NPR reporter, Nina Totenberg, shares her story of a decades-long friendship with the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Though both of these women were highly accomplished in their professional careers, had plenty of financial resources, and were admired by many, still they needed the shelter of friendship to carry them through difficult life chapters. Nina Totenberg writes about how Judge Ginsburg came over and gave her a pep talk when Totenberg's husband faced a long illness that they both knew would eventually leave her a widow, a young widow. Judge Ginsburg stood by her side when Totenberg did become that young widow. And to help her get through that first year, Judge Ginsburg would take Nina Totenberg to the opera or shopping or out to dinner. And then Nina Totenberg was there for Judge Ginsburg when her husband died. She tells the funniest story about showing up at Ginsburg's house with the casserole. They were at the front door and she said, now just heat it in the oven. There'll be enough for tonight and tomorrow night. Just reheat it in the oven. And then she said to Judge Ginsburg, do you know how to turn on the oven? And she said, no, can you show me? During the pandemic, the two women shared dinner together every Saturday night. Their friendship, you see, it was circular, it was mutual, it was life-giving, it was life-saving. In the biblical story of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, there is a third character who emerges to play a critical role. His name is Boaz, and we are told that he is a distant relative of theirs. Boaz notices Ruth out there in the fields gleaning that first day. 
You know, this gleaning thing still happens today. My friend Dawn runs a gleaning organization in Indiana where they send people out to gather up the crops that would normally just rot there in the fields, and they get that food to people who are food insecure. In the biblical times, this man Boaz looks out at this woman, Ruth, gleaning, and he realizes that she's a foreigner, and he inquires, who does she belong to? And he finds out she belongs to his own family. She's related to Naomi. She's that woman who was so kind and so friendly and so loyal to her mother-in-law. And so then he, Boaz, goes out of his way to shelter this fragile family of Ruth and Naomi. He says to his workers in the field, protect her. He says to the women in the field, let her work alongside you. He goes way above and beyond what is expected of him as a wealthy landowner and even as a distant relative to make sure that they are covered by the tent of generous friendship. Each of us in our lifetime will get a moment like that, maybe many moments, to be that above and beyond kind of friend. I remember a man here in our church, Greg would remember him. Some of you might remember him. His name was Everett Midkiff. He was quiet and shy, but firm and brusque and opinionated. He was friends with a small group of men here in the church, and they met for breakfast and Bible study and spiritual reflection and prayer and just general sharing of life. And when Everett moved his home to California so that he could spend his golden years near his son, he got up before the sun every day in California so that he could meet with that small group of men by what we thought was this advanced technology at the time, the speakerphone. Why did he do that? Because their friendship, that bond was so deep, and that small group was for him the tent that reminded him of God's incredible power to love us. In the book of Ruth, God never says a word doesn't have a speaking part at all. God remains off stage or in the shadows, but through the shelter of friendship and kindness and affection and loyalty, God's miraculous life comes forth into the world. You see, this landowner, this wealthy man named Boaz, will eventually marry the woman named Ruth who is gleaning in his fields. He will marry the foreigner, and they will have a son. And that son will have a son. And their genealogy will lead to the birth of Jesus. And we will read at the beginning of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, where the long list of begats goes through all these names of men. We will read three women's names. One of them is Ruth. And she is there because she sheltered her mother-in-law. And because Boaz sheltered Ruth, and the shelter of God's love is eventually lavished on the entire world because the miracle of friendship saves us. 
I met my friend Marion 50 years ago. Her desk sat next to mine at Meadowbrook Elementary School, and we became instant buddies. We played tennis together every Saturday morning. We went to summer camp together. We went forward at the campfire to give our lives to Jesus at the closing ceremony in the sixth grade. We played blackjack together on family vacations. I went on every family vacation every year with her family, and she went on every family vacation with mine. We spent every 4th of July together hunting for crawdads on her grandmother's farm. Marion was in my wedding. I was in hers. And last January, Marion was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It has been the worst health roller coaster you could imagine. Many surgeries, many, many life-threatening complications. And late this summer, I finally got to see Marion near her home in San Antonio. She's still on a walker. She only has a tiny bit of hair coming out. But her smile is just like it was the day I met her for the first time in the fourth grade. Over lunch, she told me that twice when she was in ICU, in the middle of the night, she was given a choice. Go left and die. Go right and live. Both times, she said, I chose to go right. During that lunch, we laughed so hard, we cried. I felt deep joy in her presence. We told the old stories, but we also shared our new stories about our joys in life today, our families, our dreams still unfolding. And as we got in the car to drive away, I realized that though she is in very fragile health, she is still my shelter. God acts through human friendship. God comforts through human kindness. God creates life through human vulnerability. This flimsy tent might be enough. <laughs>